This is Fine, Episode 1.11, The New New Marshall Plan. Hi, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jerry. Today we have with us a guest, Marshall Steinbaum. Marshall, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Thanks, I'm Marshall Steinbaum. I'm a senior economist and fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. I've been an economist for, oh, I don't know, 10 years now, if you include graduate school, three years, three three plus years since I left. And uh, it's been an interesting journey. I would say I'm not the uh, world's most... uh, typical economist, as I think Jerry is well aware. Um, I should also say that I've known uh, Jerry for slightly less time than I've been an economist, but almost as much. And I think it was shocking to him when he found out that I hold the views that I in fact hold because he had uh, pegged me as one of the bad guys. Uh, Yeah, that might be true, I guess, maybe in the very beginning. Uh, You you forgot to mention your your, uh, side job as a Twitter raconteur. Um, I think it's very important to, uh, to note that you have that that uh, f- functionality as well. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, I, I guess I, I hadn't thought of myself as a raconteur before, but I'll, I'll adopt that title as well. And we're happy to have Marshall on today because Marshall has uh, written and thought a lot about what Democrats can do um, or what governments can do uh, in terms of both industrial policy and I, I think maybe more broadly to address some of the um inequality in income and wealth distributions um, that's been, you know, we think, at least if this is fine, is, is one of the sources of our um, current political uh, unease. And just to give a little bit more context for, you know, where this conversation originates, uh, about a month ago, we had a, um, uh, you know, we, we did this uh, episode on sort of the gender and racial dimensions of labor and trying to understand sort of like what... Um, what kind of like large scale dynamics are, are driving, um, you know, this differentiation, for example, uh, between skilled and unskilled labor and how that uh, cuts across, uh, you know, race and gender lines. And now maybe I think it's uh, it's a good idea to try to like zoom out and ask kind of a, 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 qu- a question that's sort of maybe bigger in scope, which is like, what is the place of you know, government and the national economy and like, what can we do actually to sort of combat this, uh, you know, labor stagnation, I guess, if you will. So Marshall, uh, educate us. Right. Well, I think it's interesting that you just use the word natural uh, to describe the economy, because I think part of the mindset that uh, underlies the policy failures that we're currently confronting is this idea that there's some sort of natural free market economy that operates in a certain way, and then uh, that happens first, and what and thereafter we have policy which changes the market allocation of resources in some manner as determined by a political process. Um, and I think that uh, idea of how the economy works is first of all at the heart of um, economics theorizing. Uh, since the middle of the 20th century um, and is exactly the point of view that is put to the test by uh, recent events in the economy and or not so recent events uh, when we think about the long-term increase in uh, wealth and income inequality uh, because what that really brings to the fore is that the allocation of resources is not something that uh, can 
be made sense of through an economic model that says there's a primitive allocation and then we tinker around the edges with policy that the distribution of resources really is political at its core. Um, and I would say that the modern field of economics, that is neoclassical economics, as it's existed since the middle of the 20th century and has developed a great kind of intellectual edifice and, and many layers of, um, of development, really has that uh, foundational intellectual deficiency at its root. And so I guess one question that stems from that is, does that make modern uh, macroeconomic policy, for example, wrong? Like, is the, is the foundational critique sufficient to alter, um, you know, would you say, for example, Janet Yellen's decisions are wrong? Or is it more over um, micro and particularly elements like regulation or antitrust? Like, is the, is, the, is the thrust of the base wrongness that you identify something that extends everywhere? Or is it, or is it particularly on, say, industry by industry regulation? Or... Uh, that's a huge question that's a little bit hard to come up with one answer to. I mean, I think that what I'm saying does not imply that everything that Janet Yellen has done is wrong. Um, I think to speak to that particular example, for for instance, uh, Yellen gave a speech, I think, last year about where she thinks macroeconomic research needs to be refocused um, in order to better serve macroeconomic policy, which is her job. Um, and if you look at the three elements that she puts put forward in that speech is where research needs to be developed, none of those three things were completely absent from macroeconomic research agendas prior to her speech. Um, and and, to, and I, so I should say, I think she's right about the three things that she put forward. Um, and adopting the position that she's right about them does not imply that everything from the last 50 years is com completely worthless. Mm -hmm. And we need to go and, you know, totally upend the existing edifice. Um, what I'm, the, the way I would more put it is that this idea that there's uh, a market, a free market allocation of, of resources, and then policy exists separate from that to somehow uh, redirect that allocation. That's sort of a, an intellectual disease or flaw that kind of wends its way through all of the subfields that you mentioned and some other ones. Um, so to take, for example, industrial policy, uh, first of all, um, that that's a term that basically never comes up in an economics PhD graduate program. I certainly never heard it um, put forward by any of my professors in any lecture or mentioned by any by, by any visiting academic who was giving a seminar on any paper. Um, if it was ever mentioned in the context of the economics department where I trained, it would only be as an aside, a throwaway aside to say this would be bad. Um, and the reason why is because the ideology of the field is such that uh, industrial policy conjures up images of the government interfering in the natural uh, functioning of the market to the benefit of certain players. And that process is, according to the ideology of economics, likely to be corrupted, likely to be inefficient, um, and therefore something that any good economist would oppose that is kind of this foil that can be put up there as uh, exactly the wrong way of conducting economic policy. Um, whereas one of the things I'd like to talk about in this uh, discussion today is that in a way America has never had an economic policy that was not an industrial policy. Uh, and any time, every time we talk about what is uh, the appropriate trajectory for economic policy, it has some flavor of uh, these resources are too scarce and we need policy in order to 
uh, make those resources more abundant, that would uh, enable the economy to grow. Um, and it, it, at the same time as we have this, this ideology that says the free market exists in this uh, separate kind of holy sphere before politics gets involved, on the other hand, we have uh, a, another rhetoric that says uh, we need the government to rectify problems that have to do with some resources being too scarce um, and others being too abundant. So like, for instance, the discussion over uh, labor market mobility has a flavor in many cases of uh, unemployed workers or underemployed workers are located in the wrong place. Um, if only we had an allocation of workers across space that better mirrored the allocation of job opportunities across space, then we would have uh, fewer problems with our labor market. And on the one hand, people will make that will will be happy to uh, make that genre of argument, uh, at which again suggests that there's some sort of market failure going on. Um, at the same time, as they uh, scorn any kind of argument that says uh, we should interfere in the natural functioning of the economy. Right, and a similar one might be investment in educational inputs, right? Because the sort of uh, investment in in education is is obviously. Um, also a, a market failure in some sense, but not necessarily, I think, considered industrial policy by many people who, um, other than than those sort of interventions, would largely just support, um, you know, tax and transfer uh, type um, remediation of inequality as opposed to sort of, they, they would view other movements in the economy as right, belonging to the sort of species of things that maybe only are done in emerging markets or uh, are, are sort of, um, you know, have all these uh, problems associated with them. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up uh, education and specifically higher education as a policy area that I have uh, recently become more knowledgeable about over the couple of years since I left graduate school. Um, and I think there's no, I, I, the, what, the way I like to talk about this is that the federal student loan program is the most ambitious labor market policy at the federal level in decades, uh, dwarfing essentially any other policy departure that has been undertaken um, in our lifetimes and living memory, um, on the on an exactly industrial policy inflected argument, um, where but as you say, people would that that saying that we need to have the uh, workforce be more skilled and that an appropriate policy in order to uh, have the workforce be more skilled is to make federal student loans much more available to the general population in the hopes that many more people will have a higher level of educational attainment than they would have otherwise. Um, that is all sort of totally acceptable within the rhetoric of uh, economics, even as, as you say, industrial policy as an idea would be something that, you know, the, the, uh, the French do that we would never be so stupid as to emulate. It's, it's interesting that, you know, I, I, just con to contemplate this this uh, issue of like the student loans, for example, like it seems like a very weird program where you know we have this mechanism that's supposedly you know supposed to some somehow equilibrate, uh, you know certain inequalities, but the way that it does this is by like routing money through all kinds of secondary and tertiary actors, you know each of whom somehow skims off the top of it, as opposed to just saying okay, well we're just going to make education free, like. Because that would be kind of the ultimate student loan program and that the loans would be zero and then it would just all be paid for with the taxes. But instead, what we do is we funnel, you know, we have this extremely complicated machinery that that is supposed to kind of 
move all this money around and hopefully benefit students. But in reality, you know, a lot of times you see that it does no such thing. Although, can I be contrarian for a second? I mean, if you were to take that position to the nth degree, you might just support, let's eliminate all of these governmental structures and just give people direct transfers. Whereas I think an interesting line in this argument separately is actually, you know, education or health. Um, healthcare, I think, is now the biggest industry in Pittsburgh, I think, a fact that I learned from Jerry. That's right, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, maybe this sort of, like, you might call it a redirection being skimmed or something, but maybe there's just a point of actually one of the things we've done by having healthcare be a six of GDP is we've we've had a huge jobs policy, roughly, in terms of, you know, creating more uh, healthcare workers and healthcare clerical workers and insurance workers, et cetera. So what I, what I wanted to say to what Jerry brought up about this sort of roundabout way that we conduct a higher education policy and that we make student loans available to individuals, um, that it's that is not just just it's not just about creating opportunities for private sector actors to skim off the top. I would say it's actually a profound statement of uh, the way that we have chosen to conduct economic policy in this country uh, ever since the uh, New Deal and Great Society era. The Higher Education Act of 1965 was a great uh, society um, program, and crucially, it, instead of doing what had previously done when some big realm of the economy was brought into the federal into the sphere of federal economic policy, uh, we did not set up a public good. That is, we could have in 1965 taken the California Master Plan national in effect. Um, and at that time, there was a great movement towards the idea that the future of the American economy would be knowledge based, that we were a scientific leader, uh, that we needed to conduct uh, research in order to create the, the ind industries of the future. Um, and the way that we had done that to date as of 1965, when we had that sort of impetus and policy was to have either the state governments or the federal government set up institutions that are, that just did the thing that we were saying needed to be done. Um, that was not done with the Higher Education Act of 1965, and it was the the uh, retreat from the public goods, public options model um, was further entrenched in the various renewals of the Higher Education Act that took place after 1965. Um, instead, we got the federal student loan program, at where, as Jerry said, the premise is that individuals will borrow money uh, guaranteed for it used to be guaranteed by the federal government. Now the federal government actually originates the loans um, and they will go into the market for higher education and choose the degree that is uh, most appropriate for them, uh, given their uh, projection of lifetime earnings associated with different degrees, their cost of capital uh, and their career choices. Um, and I think that is in some sense, that policy decision is in some sense prior to the economic theory that justifies the policy decision in the first place. So economists like to think of what what they call the human capital model of, uh, of education and potentially of the labor market um, as this sort of new idea that was developed by uh, the, the most famous figure associated with its development is the economist Gary Becker, um, that he kind of developed a theory that has uh, individuals investing in their education with some foresight about the uh, earnings associated with varying levels of education, and they choose to educate themselves up to the level that uh, their projection of earnings uh, renders economic. 
uh, and it kind of takes the character of this individual optimization decision. Because if there's one thing that people love is to project their lifetime earnings, they're really good at that. Right, and knowing which which majors lead to which income, and also it's education's not obviously a good that you purchase. Like you could maybe see this model if it worked if if you purchase some infinitesimal amount of education every day, um, but basically it's a good that you maybe purchase once with someone else's money, uh, with very at a time when many people have very little information. So there, I, I would, I, I'm going to kind of take a step back in terms of my analysis of the human capital theory, because you can certainly critique it on those kind of, uh, on those grounds, which are more aimed at, is it really uh, factual to assume that people are perfectly forward looking and rational that 18 year olds are, perfect, are perfectly mapping out their earnings trajectories, uh, given different levels of education, different, given different majors. I'm not discounting that uh, critique of it. What I want to say is that the human capital model and its relationship to higher education policy and the Higher Education Act of 1965 um, kind of perfectly slots this policy area into uh, what was then the developing language of where economic policy is allowed to exist. So um, in the first half of the 20th century, we had a much more expansive view of economic policy coming from what were then the elite economists. Uh, they had a very different uh, theory of how the economy worked, which was uh, much more atheoretic than than uh, Becker and his colleagues, um, and there was a much wider scope for policy. What happened with the neoclassical revolution, starting with Paul Samuelson and, and the generation of economists that became prominent between, say, 1945 and 1960, 1965, so they're the ones who really could, uh, conjured up this idea that there was this sort of uh, uh, market equilibrium uh, pre-policy, and then if we had economic policy, it somehow altered a, a pre-existing market equilibrium and, and tinkered around the edges. Um, that whole mindset about uh, of neoclassical economics um, has certain areas, has, cer has certain exceptions where you're allowed to do economic policy. So it has the concept of externalities, uh, the concept of public goods, eventually the concept of information asymmetry. Um, these are all, in the context of those models, these are all kind of, you might say, exceptions to the rule of a efficient competitive equilibrium that satisfies wealth, the, the welfare criteria that we all agree about. Under these certain exceptions, then there's scope for policy. That was the sort of that that was the theoretical move that happened around those decades. And what Becker's human capital model does is it perfectly locates higher education policy and the Higher Education Act of 1965 in one of those exceptions. And specifically, it's the idea that the the market for human capital, the market to finance human capital, is going to be incomplete uh, because uh, you cannot. Uh, properly collateralize a student loan in an environment where we don't allow slavery and we don't allow human capital uh, equity contracts. Um, so this this is an exception that says, okay, you, if you went to the bank and said, please give me a student loan, um, and the bank could have no assurance that they would be able to recover payment in the event you didn't pay it back, um, the, the bank is not going to offer you that loan, so the government has to. So that says, here's a little... Uh, kind of slice of economic policy that that can be brought to bear in the higher education because sphere. of the pesky Thirteenth Amendment. Yes, the pet right. Well, I, I I 
remember Becker lecturing about this, and uh, he didn't say the word pesky. I mean, he, he expressed support for the 13th Amendment, which is the sort of minimum standard that one would hope that the economics faculty of the University of Chicago would uh, would sustain. Um, but that that was the the mindset was uh, this is a uh, a sphere in which the government does have a role. Um, what so what what is ruled out by that whole line of argument is governments building universities and making them tuition free and making them uh, a a high quality public good that is available on a free and equal basis to all citizens. So in the in the world where it's it's not exception by exception, but rather you accept that markets are not natural and maybe it's sort of all all markets are the state of exception. How do you measure when your public good investment is efficient or inefficient? Because even in a world where um, you say, hey, we should be funding lots more public goods, none of these markets are natural, industries often get support from governments or we're choosing between resources. Like, is there just a place for a state command function that um, might get things wrong? Like, I guess, you know, where's where's sort of the mechanism design in the sort of you know, Marshall's, um, you know, reforming of this system? Uh, I think we're venturing into too theoretical territory for me to be able to answer that on a blanket basis. Okay, I want to say something uh, something about this whole business of, okay, so where do you draw the line? Where How do you direct policy in a world? I think that you've accurately characterized the Marshall theory of the economy would be that everything is a state of exception. The whole idea that there's this pre-policy allocation of resources um, is just not correct. Um, we have had, as part of the uh, intellectual advance of um, free market economics, a, a decisive move against the idea of the public sector. Um, and I am convinced that that intellectual move is deeply, deeply racialized. Um, mm. That basically the civil rights movement was uh, a movement to make these grand edifices of the state uh, that had been created starting with the New Deal or starting in the progressive era, but especially in the New Deal on the federal level, um, to make these available to minorities. That it was going to become federal policy, not just that these things existed, but that everyone was going to be included in that. And the resurgence of free market economics that took place in the decades, uh, well, I mean, I guess it started before the, what we consider the civil rights movement, but um, that became especially uh, powerful during and after the civil rights movement was this is an intellectually respectable way to reverse that policy agenda, to reverse the idea that uh, we have these grand edifices of the state that everybody has access to um, because we want to essentially remove all the grand edifices of the state. And politically, the way that that was done was by giving white people an out. So uh, on the one hand, we have uh, Brown versus Board of Education. It becomes federal policy that the uh, one of the greatest things that the United States has ever created, a universal uh, uh, education system, K-12, um, had previously been uh, acceptable to deny black people access to this great civilizational success. Uh, now is federal policy that everyone should have access and we will take action, we the federal government will take action to the point of violence to ensure that everyone has access to it. The response to that became 
first of all, white people should have their own public education system where they don't have to deal with now the diverse set of students and parents who would potentially be in the schools with them. So we will create segregated suburbs um, and effectively have a market for education that operates through the housing market as opposed to one big public good that is integrated um, that that serves everyone where we remove education from the market. Um, and then once we have re-racialized the, uh, the, this uh, public education so that uh, white people and black people have each their separate public education, then then it's much then it's much easier politically to set about the destruction of the part of that public education system that serves black people. Um, and I think that is what we have seen in the last 30 years. Right. And I, I think it's worth noting for our listeners, you know, the public schools in New York City right now are actually more segregated than they were prior to Brown v. Board uh, in the South. So the because of the housing market, and even in New York, you don't actually even need suburbs. You can just have in you know Manhattan, um, obviously, very strong delineation between neighborhoods um, and school choice, which also serves to further segregate the schools. Um, it's amazing that uh, in a district that's majority um, non-white, most white children in New York City schools go to a school that's majority white. Actually, it's even weirder than that, because what's, what's actually happening is that even in like nominally wealthy parts of Manhattan, you have these schools that are like isolated islands of, you know, essentially minorities. So the schools themselves have very high minority populations, despite the fact that the surrounding areas are actually predominantly white and rich because the people who live in those areas don't want to send their kids to the school with that the black and Hispanic kids go to. So it's... Right. Yeah, um, I mean, and I, I think I think I think what has to be noted here, and I, th- I think the New York Times ran a story about this yesterday or the day before. Yeah, that that is a conscious strategy of the New York City Department of Education to resegregate the schools. Basically, their view is that um, when we integrated the schools, uh, I guess during the civil rights movement, I'm, uh, I I don't know exactly what the timing was of uh, and and policies within. Uh, the public school system in New York City, um, but I know there were, you know, conscious efforts to do that within uh, the public education system in, in the '60s and I think into the early '70s. Um, white people basically withdrew. White people had the option of leaving. They either left for the suburbs, went, had their kids in private school, or whatever. And the New York City education uh, system became a black system. Where I mean, there's. A diverse population, but it became a non-white system. Um, and in order to get white people back, which is a requirement for its long-term political viability, so the thinking went, uh, we have to resegregate the system so that we're creating options that white parents will choose. Uh, and I think that was a conscious policy decision. They created those options. The, uh, the New York City education system became better in the sense that uh, more uh, children from wealthier backgrounds were opting back into it, um, and they were opting into the options that were created to attract them. Um, and I think that that tells you something uh, profound about the way in which we conduct uh, certainly education policy, but I think this could be extended over other policy areas, which is to say, whatever we're making choices about how to conduct education policy or economic policy in general, the one constraint that must be satisfied is that 
the racial hierarchy can never be questioned. And and what's um, that? And it, it, yeah, sorry. Go, in right, this go. case, we're, we're 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 giving white parents the veto over how we operate the education system, and needless to say, it is therefore going to be operated in such a way that preserves racial hierarchy. And and what's really sad about this to to me is that you have people. Um, like Samantha B, who is a, a liberal icon, who is, you know, very active in a movement actually to basically keep um, schools segregated in, in New York. And I think that there has been, this is an example of, I, I don't think this actually is a, a good example of the sort of neoliberal left cleaving that exists. I think this is sort of more just a, it is very easy to say, oh, of course, I think Brown v. Board is incredibly important. And I fight racism. That's one of the reasons I'm against Trump. But my children, I just want them to go to a school with good test scores. And at the root of that is segregation. And it's, I think, incredibly um, disheartening that the, as Marshall notes, this is sort of one of our best public goods. And liberals have been very complicit, especially northern liberals, in basically destroying that public good uh, over the last 40, 40 years. I think also that this is uh, this conversation is um, very pertinent to kind of another uh, line of um, narrative that we had discussed on and off on on, on the show, which is sort of the story that uh, was told by Matthew Stoller in The Atlantic and other places about kind of, you know, what caused sort of like the Democratic Party's neoliberal turn um, and how kind of like, you know, he draws this like very sharp cleavage between like the old populists and the new like neoliberals or whatever. And, you know, I think that I really appreciate this, uh, this this story that Marshall's telling here because I think it really highlights the way that these different streams, you know, neoclassical economics and uh, the backlash to uh, desegregation, how these things sort of intersected and gave rise to like a different logic of the way that government should operate and on whose behalf it should operate. So I think that's a kind of an important corrective to that, I think, a little bit simplified story that... Uh, um, you know, that Stoller was telling in places. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. I think that uh, that the sort of schematic that Stoller has in that piece about the decline of populism in the Democratic coalition has this uh, dichotomy, or, or I read into it, maybe maybe I'm over-reading the piece, but, you know, I'm somewhat familiar with, with all of the principles, and uh, principles ALS, uh, involved here um, that kind of puts that in opposition to an identity-based uh, liberalism that's about upholding uh, groups that had previously been excluded. Um, and I don't think that that uh, dichotomy is like we used to have populists that were about uh, community and now we have um, new liberals or, or uh, neoliberals, whatever you want to call them, that are all about upholding individual identity. Um, I think the undermining of uh, the populist notion of the public good. So as I said, the civil rights movement was about extending the populist notion of the public good that had been instantiated on the federal level in the New Deal. It was about expanding that finally to black people who had been excluded when it was first enacted on the federal level in the 1930s. Um, and what happened in the 1970s as uh, the sort of democratic coalition forgot about the New Deal, um, and so according to Stoller, centered this issue of identity more straightforwardly. Um, I think what was really going on there was uh, a, a finding a way of resegregating exactly what I was talking before. It wasn't that people wanted to uphold 
people's individual identities and thus uh, the populist edifices that had been created were less relevant. Um, but by uh, turning on popular, by turning against populism um, and turning against universal public goods and public options, that became a way of uh, not ju- of preserving the racial hierarchy and uh, and making it and, and reversing the advances that had been made to overturn it in in the civil rights movement. I mean, I think maybe this is actually a good pivot point too to think about um, some of the points about uh, regulation and, and also unionization that are also part of this swing, because um, you know, as someone else, another guest on the pod, we had Frey DeBoer has said recently, you know, a thing that gets lost in a focus on. Um, this context of, oh, it's a battle between uh, identity politics versus economic politics is deunionization really um, radically took away um, a way for uh, non-white men, especially uh, to enter the middle class through uh, industrial jobs. And the sort of the death of Detroit in a lot of ways is the story about the um, death of really like why was there a great northern migration? What was this was the the engine of economic opportunity for um, a multiracial um, a, a group of people? And so I, I think that the again here's here's another story, which is industrial policy isn't just about um, you know an economic access; it's also about the ways in which certain types of economic opportunity um, really are also levers for um, you know uh, social change and for extending. Um, you know, a good middle class job, which is also sort of a public good in a lot of ways, um, to a, a broader set of people than than just say, you know, white men. Yeah, I think that the, I mean, what I would talk about here, I think I think it's it's correct to talk about um, industrial unionism in the north, um, but the story is slightly more uh, nuanced than I think uh, Freddie's picture of it was, um, in the sense that the the uh, migrants who who came to the north and worked those industrial jobs. Um, directly after the Great Migration, uh, worked them for lower wages. They worked that first of all, they were given the worst jobs, and they worked them at lower wage rate uh, wages than um, uh, than white workers. And consequently, the black white uh, earnings gaps and black white employment gaps in the country as a whole did not start closing until after the Second World War, until during and after the Second World War. Uh, when there was a conscious effort to integrate uh, the military-industrial supply chain uh, during the war, and then immediately after it was over to integrate the military itself, um, and I think that so so I, I while while it is definitely true that um, the northern industri- uh, uh, industrial sectors and their unions were crucial elements of uh, clo- of bringing about the one period in American history since emancipation that there has actually been. Uh, progress towards closing uh, racial uh, earnings and employment gaps. Um, it, it, we can't just stop there. I think it's really important to take one further step and say this was about uh, a public policy that was about the public sector, um, that the crucial element was the expansion of the public sector, which uh, has always, not I'm sorry, not has always, but in this case, uh, was conducted in a less discriminatory manner than the private labor market. Um, so in uh, a couple of minutes ago, I kind of poured cold water on the idea that there's this uh, robust distinction between the the free market, the private sector and its allocations, and then um, government and uh, economic policy. I think in this 
instance, there really is a historically meaningful uh, distinction in the following way. The, the, free market, the free labor market or the private labor market has always been racially discriminatory. Uh, the uh, public sector has not always been as racially discriminatory as the, uh, as the private sector. And in particular, public sector jobs have been the route to the creation of the black middle class in this country. So part of the neoliberal turn against the state privatization and school choice um, and uh, like the New York City budget crisis, there was this enormously racialized aspect to the politics of that um, has and austerity and, and uh, at the uh, state and local levels um, and pension crises and so on. All of that has at its root the idea that um, the public sector is a harm to the economy um, and therefore we have to uh, minimize its power, minimize its size, minimize its funding, which means as a byproduct, the destruction or uh, of the black middle class. So this kind of, I guess, uh, raises um, a question of, you know, what is like, where, where do you go from here? Right. So, you know, the historical analysis, I think, um, is, you know, it's valuable. And I think um, most people that I, at least most people that I know on the left, you know, kind of generally accept it. Um, and, um, but I guess, I guess the question is sort of like, what is like, what can be done at, you know, at any level, right? Because, um, one of the, so I guess, I guess the question I want to ask is that there's sort of like, there's multiple streams of thought about this, but you know, there's one stream of thought that, um, is kind of like, which, which I know you're, you're not big on. So I'm like setting you up to like, tell everybody what's wrong with it. Uh, you know, there's a story about uh, kind of automation and how automation is going to like do away with, um, you know, all sorts of jobs that are not, no longer going to be necessary. And then on the other hand, there's like this idea that, you know, like what are you going to do as a society with people who, you know, lack the skills, lack, or there's no necessity for their labor or whatever. So um, they're not, they're related, but they're, they're not the same argument. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to leave it up to you to like sort of, you know, say like what, what you think about these questions uh, and kind of, um, you know, what are the options that are actually available to us? Right. Well, I do not think that the end of labor is imminent. Uh, labor has always been extremely valuable and necessary in the economy, and there is absolutely no reason to think it will be less so in the future. Um, I discount the uh, automation and, uh, argument as being in any way responsible for uh, the macroeconomic labor or the, the uh, uh, macro labor market's performance uh, in recent decades as it has become more unequal, as uh, wages have stagnated, as underemployment has uh, grown in uh, certain segments of the population and it's kind of drifting into segments where it was previously unknown. Um, I don't think that the technological uh, displacement of labor story holds any water at all. Sorry, um, do you think that's trade or do you, do you argue that it's internal domestic policy? I think it's internal domestic policy, and I'll get more specific about what I mean by that uh, in, in a second. Um, the argument or the, the evidence against the idea that there's technological displacement of labor, uh, I think, covers a couple of bases. One is that you would expect uh, workers who remain employed to be earning more rather than less than they previously were um, if the issue were that machines were replacing workers because those workers who remain employed are now more productive 
given that they are operating more and higher quality machines with a higher output, um, the neoclassical theory of wage settings suggests that they would then have wage increases. And of course, nobody in the labor market other than the top 1% of CEOs and, and so on has really had any wage, uh, wage increases to speak of. Um, it all, I mean, just in terms of the people who directly measure uh, uh, trends in labor productivity, there's no reason to think that labor is getting more productive. So even if you believe a story, which I think is, is uh, reasonable, that uh, we, there's no, it's possible for uh, wages and productivity trends to diverge. So you could have uh, labor becoming more productive, even as its wage is stagnating for reasons of, uh, of power and exploitation, for example. Um, it's still not the case that uh, labor has become a lot more productive. It's, I, I don't think it's becoming less productive, um, but if anything, the rate of productivity growth of labor has been in decline. So that's the, that is basically the opposite of the robot story of the technological unemployment story. Um, and the people who study that, I think, have essentially arrived at that consensus. Um, and then finally, uh, getting back to something which uh, you know I study more uh, directly is this issue of credentialization of the labor market. Um, so if the issue were that the few new jobs of the future just required skills that um, existing workers don't have, then the workers who have those skills um, should be uh, getting raises, as I said before, and uh, the ones who have those skills should be employed at a, a rate that was relatively higher than uh, similarly skilled counterparts at earlier eras. Um, so we should see a sort of skill stratification of the labor market. And while economists used to believe that was the case using data up through the 90s, um, recent uh, evidence suggests that that basically stopped, if not reversed, in uh, the 2000s. Uh, essentially, the, the, the jobs that were created on net over the course of the 2000s up until the start of the Great Recession, um, and then especially uh, including the period after it began and the, the weak recovery since then, the net creation of jobs has all been in the low-wage labor market and the low-skill labor market. Um, and there is not the sense that um, the economy has uh, jobs that are available for highly skilled workers. And in fact, what we see with uh, uh, labor market credentialization is that workers that have that are relatively higher skilled are taking lower skilled jobs than they would have in previous eras. So it takes more, you know, now in, uh, you can't, get a job, uh, as say, as a, a teacher, I don't, uh, with just a bachelor's degree, you need a master's. Um, you have people uh, who are highly credentialed in the sciences, for instance, you're taking many more postdocs than they would have had to in the past um, before they if, if, before they would find a, a secure employment, if they ever do. Right, or non-STEM um, jobs. These, right, yeah. right, right, exactly. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, there's just the sense that um, inter it, uh, accessing, uh, the way I put it is, a accessing a certain rung on the job ladder uh, requires more in the way of uh, higher education credentials and uh, therefore in the way of student debt uh, than it once did, or said differently, holding constant the amount, uh, the, the level of educational attainment and holding constant the amount of student debt, the rung that you can access is far lower on the job ladder. And I don't think that that, that uh, fact pattern supports a technological displacement of labor story. To be fair, this uh, isn't inconsistent with the David Otter data about there being many fewer middle-skilled jobs, right? You're just talking about the distribution, again, for people who have similar education and credential to, or skill and credential to the, you know, uh, the, the same skill and credential that someone 20 years ago would have had is now on a lower rung. But, but this isn't inconsistent with that data. Or, or are you saying that you actually think that the Otter's wrong in terms of that... Um, 
you know, because he he talks about the throw that's hollowing out, right? Yes. Yeah, so I do think Otter is wrong, to be frank. Um, the way that his theory was initially put forward around 2003 was in, in terms of uh, job polarization or skill polarization. And he created these uh, charts where on the uh, x-axis you had uh, occupations or industries lined up in order of skill measured in some way. Um, and then on the y-axis, you had the net increase or decline in uh, the total, the share of total employment in the labor market at that level of skill. And he drew these charts that had that as a U-shape, which he called the hollowing out of middle skill jobs. So you just um, see it as an L-shape, uh, basically. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's not just me who sees it as that. There have been papers that have published, been published, totally replicating the um, methodology to come up with this chart. Uh, for the, two, the year of the 2000s, and especially uh, including the Great Recession, and compare that to the charts that Otter made in the 90s, and they show that the downward ramp. It's not a U, it's a, a, an L shape, as you put it. So what do you think accounts for this? Well, I think we basically decided not to run the economy at full employment, um, and I think that that policy decision uh, has taken a couple of different forms, um, but possibly the most... The, the starkest fact that operates at a macro level that needs to be explained um, is the fact that uh, corporate profits are higher than they've, uh, than they've ever been or uh, high, as high as they ever go. Um, and the uh, cost of capital to corporations is low and yet corporations are not investing and not creating jobs. So this is a basic uh, market failure at a fundamental level. Economic theory or neoclassical economic theory says that when uh, corporations uh, or when anybody uh, has an investment opportunity with a high profit margin, um, that they will take that opportunity, that corporations would expand output uh, in order to uh, profit by the marginal unit until the point that um, the, the uh, return on investment at the margin uh, equals its cost and you're at uh, market equilibrium. And if corporations themselves don't do it for whatever reason, then new entrants will because say some new company in the in the sector will say, oh, the incumbents are earning a 10% profit margin. Um, I can replicate their business in every respect, except I just charge, you know, one cent less on a per unit price. I will take all their business um, and I will have a, you know, 9.999% profit margin. That's great. And then the process of uh, competition works itself out to the point that um, the economy operates at, uh, uh, at full capacity. That is the, the more or less a sketch of the theory. I, I was I was going to say I think even the most committed neoclassical economist probably doesn't think that uh, you know a new entrant can supplant Google, for example. <laughs> well, right, and this actually is maybe a very good place to go to monopoly power because existing um, companies in the current model, the profits may be high enough to build up enough um, capital that they could just acquire new entrants or set up other moats, and there's no regulatory apparatus to stop them from doing so. And that's a lot cheaper than having your profits competed away. Yes, uh, so I completely agree with that, and uh, it's appropriate to discuss uh, competition policy and, uh, as you put it, the market power that Google or any other large incumbent might exercise to prevent an upstart from taking its business um, at this point, because I think that's a big part of the story of this persistent high profit margins without uh, investment. Uh, I want to make two points before we get to uh, sort of what might, if we do want to get into the weeds of competition policy. Um, before we do, because I usually, well, so for one thing, you introduced the subject of um, what do we do about the labor market? And to me, the 
uh, absent aggregate demand that would bring the labor market to full employment, which we have not seen, is exactly the investment that firms are not making that economic theory says they should be when uh, they're in a, a position to profit at the margin. Um, instead, what they're doing is uh, paying out profits to shareholders in the form of dividends and stack, stock buybacks, um, or in some cases just sitting on the money on, on the corporate balance sheet because there's tax reasons, notably the rise of tax havens. Um, overseas, where it, basically the corporation itself becomes a tax haven. So all these rich shareholders don't want the money in their bank account because they'd have to pay taxes when they get it, rather just keep it in the corporate uh, ledger uh, in the tax haven and they don't have to pay taxes on it. But either way, what you're seeing is the rise of uh, shareholder power and corporate power such that the discretion is all on, uh, on their side uh, and the, the interest at, in the in the decision making of the corporation that rules is the interest of the shareholders and the top managers who are often themselves also the top shareholders to use the corporation to make themselves money right and just just to give sorry just to give the listeners some context for marshall's statement there are about two and a half trillion dollars in corporate cash holdings overseas which are not being taxed and right which of course are the property of the the shareholders and so if you think about that as a um a tax haven in itself which i think is a very nice construction um that's actually a phenomenal amount of wealth uh so sorry marshall but please continue yeah no, i think i think that that that's exactly right um where i, I the way that i think about this is that in some sense the old public corporation was this agglomeration of interests. You had shareholders, you had CEOs and managers, you had workers, maybe unionized workers, but workers, um, you had uh, consumers, you had, in some sense, long run investment um, as a separate interest. Um, and you had uh, the government as, you know, this corporate, this corporation and its uh, uh, income and profits are part of the government's tax base. Um, that balance of interests has shifted radically. And I think that that um, is a big cause of the fact that the labor market is not operating at, at full employment. Um, so on the one hand, it, it's interesting to me because there is this whole kind of intellectual movement within economics to solve the problem of the public corporation where that problem was conceived as a divergence of interest between the shareholders and the managers that they, that was this was modeled in a principal agent context. So uh, the shareholders want the corporation to be as profitable as possible, um, but the, the managers may have some other interests like paying themselves or, or uh, some, some other reason not to uh, labor solely on behalf of the shareholders and their interests. Um, and the, the the mechanism design problem here is to align the interests of the share of the managers with that of the shareholders. Well, it looks like they've solved it by turning the managers into the shareholders. Yes, that is precisely right. That was the recommendation of the uh, brilliant mechanism designers who literally just won a Nobel Prize last year um, was to turn the managers into shareholders. Um, we did that, and lo and behold, we have what I now consider the problem of the public corporation, though it extends well beyond uh, formerly public corporations, which is to say the alignment of interest between uh, shareholders and managers to the detriment of everybody else. Um, and this, that the fact that the corporation conceived as a broad construct um, exists to the benefit of its wealthiest stakeholders and not to everybody else's, is what underlies all manner of profit-seeking behavior, including uh, formerly anti-competitive behavior that uh, would, in previous eras, 
have been in violation of antitrust laws. Um, also, outsourcing of labor, what, what one of my favorite economists, David Weil, calls the fissured workplace, um, where rather than have statutory employment, which entitles employees to a certain claim on corporate resources under uh, federal and state labor law and by custom, um, if you outsource employees to a contractor um, or uh, in, have some other more arm's length labor relationship, then you can deny the people who are doing work for your company the, the rights and compensation that they would have gotten in earlier eras. I and think and the benefits apply. that they'd be accorded to under federal law, right? Contractors are exempt from, from many, like, for example, Obamacare says that all people with over 50 employees basically suffer these incredible penalties unless they offer health insurance, but that doesn't apply to your contractors. Um, I do want to point out to our listeners um, a surprising paper from Andre Schliefer and Larry Summers, who are economist-minded listeners might be surprised to hear making this argument, but they write a paper called Implications of Financial Capitalism for Employment Relations Research, which basically identified private equity firms' gains as not being driven by efficiency, but by violating implicit contracts that existed within firms between employees and contractors, suppliers, workers, and the owners of the firm. And they said that was likely the source of the efficiency gain. It's a very interesting, actually, anti-private equity paper. Um, and I think it, it certainly applies. You can almost think of every firm now because, as, as Marshall just noted, of the and Jerry noted, the alignment of interests now where, where managers are the owners. Um, th this is sort of, I think, a, a, almost a great meta model for, for the ways in which um, the, the excess profits have been driven. Yes. Uh, so the, the one thing that I wanted to add, and that, that's a fantastic paper, and I think, you know, it's, it's almost kind of the ur text for the modern economy as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, and it's kind of surprising the identity of the authors since in some sense, you know, Summer's tenure in office as a high economic policymaker is responsible for exactly the trends that he's talking about. Um, I want to focus on the issue of progressive taxation or taxation in general, but in particular the retreat from progressive taxation on the federal level, because I think that really plays a decisive role in this uh, changing alignment of interests. The way I like to put it is um, for a while in this country between the mid-30s and uh, 1961, we had a 91% statutory marginal income tax rate for the highest uh, income tax bracket. Um, after 1961, or I'm sorry, it's not 1961, it's in the Kennedy administration, um, it was lowered to 70%, and then it was not until the Reagan administration that it was lowered to 28%, I believe. Um, that level of marginal taxation is the de facto maximum income. Um, and that exerts a decisive influence over the behavior of rich people in the economy. The, the uh, free market economics theory of progressive taxation is that the way it influences behavior is that if tax rates on the rich are too high, then they'll withdraw their labor from the economy and the rest of us will suffer from the absence of uh, the most skilled, most brilliant minds uh, going to their ranch in the Gulch, desert Gulch. or whatever. Yes, exactly. Um, but in, so that has nothing to do with reality. But there is a reality of the effect of progressive taxation on uh, the behavior of the rich, which is to say that when you're already earning what is in effect the, the maximum income, it's there is no point in engaging in the uh, anti-competitive behavior in the labor outsourcing in the otherwise uh, rent extraction mode of operating the corporation that you either run or own. Um, so. Uh, 
essentially, why would you merge two gigantic profitable corporations and lay off 10,000 workers um, if everybody involved, be that the CEOs, the shareholders, the lawyers and investment bankers who, who um, consult and, and they're the ones pitching the merger in the first place, if all of those people are already earning the de facto maximum income, uh, there's really no point in operating your company like that. Uh, rather, it will be operated in a more egalitarian fashion where um, the claims of the of the less uh, well-off uh, uh, stakeholders, be they workers or consumers, um, would have a greater sway. And I think the important piece that is that also, uh, you know, you could justify that merger in some theory by saying, oh, but it's going to add to overall economic growth. But I think that important, exactly important part of this is, is how, you know, uh, you've shown that over the course of, of these mergers, actually, you decrease economic growth because you create these large incumbents, um, these who exert monopoly power and actually increase uh, market inefficiency. Um, and so I think that's also sort of because I think, you know, many times these mergers are justified in various different industries, airline industry, et cetera, as being, oh, well, th this is actually, you know, will be good for overall economic growth. And I think that that's clearly wrong. Right. Well, there's certainly no uh, empirical evidence that it's right. And yet the, the mere assertion that it could possibly be right more or less totally overturned the policy paradigm in uh, competition and antitrust policy in a direction that was completely favorable toward uh, whatever decisions incumbent businesses made. Um, so there used to be a presumption against uh, allowing uh, mergers over a certain size and a, a certain structural character uh, that, that they would just be prohibited pro forma because we would assume that the motive for the merger was anti-competitive. Essentially what happened in this policy sphere is that a bunch of right-wing economists and lawyers funded by um, uh, foundations that had been set up by these extremely profitable incumbents um, came up with theories that said, well, actually, when they want to merge, it might increase uh, efficiency and it might increase economic growth. Um, and therefore, the presumption should be in favor of whatever the incumbents want to do. And that that entirely theoretic uh, departure and was sufficient in its time in totally reversing the posture of uh, federal antitrust policy. It's kind of shocking to me now because when an economist makes a, state, makes a statement that their research has policy implications, the idea that we, they would skip over the segment where you show that your theory is actually true, <laughs> you know, that would be laughed out of the room now. And yet it, that is exactly what happened. So the story that's coming together for me here, I guess, is that, I mean, this is sort of consistent, I know, with the work that the Roosevelt Institute is doing, is which is about you know, changing the rules, right? I mean, that's kind of the the, the tagline I think that Mike Gonzalez has uh, been putting out there. And that, you know, if you, if, if instead of taking like the market, quote unquote, as, you know, some exogenously given entity and just assuming, you know, tinkering on, on the edges, you assume, or not you don't assume, but you realize that the market is kind of like, markets are formed by systems of rules and the rules dictate, you know, kind of what, people's incentives might or might not be, um, you know, that, that the way that I think, if correct me if I'm wrong about this, <clears throat> but the way that I, that, you know, Roosevelt seems to be imagining, um, you know, the path forward is uh, to try to alter the rules, whether by, uh, you know, by changing the top marginal tax rate or changing, you know, the way that you're allowed to, you know, move money around overseas, whatever, all this kind of stuff uh, in order to, kind of, I, I don't know, you, you know, sort of force this compression from the top end. Is that a, uh, is that a fair uh, description? 
I would say it's it, it's a fair description, but it's not a complete description. Sure. Um, I think that there's also a strong element that is re about re-erecting the edifice of uh, the public sector and public goods in a way that has been forgotten in all the ways that we were discussing earlier um, and forgotten in a motivated fashion um, that these, the, those principles that were at the heart of the New Deal, so in part it's about uh, uh, taming the power of the people at the top of the economic hierarchy and in part it's about uh, building up the uh, sources of power and the sources of economic well-being for everybody else, um, that way of uh, creating a, a, an economy that works for everyone through the provision of universal public goods and public options um, really needs to be brought back into the center of uh, economic policy discussion and just general, uh, I guess, understanding of what it is the economy is there to do um, and what it could possibly do. Uh, my view of this is, and I'm, I guess you could say that one of the reasons I'm very happy to be working at the Roosevelt Institute, um, is that this was a, uh, a a fight, a debate that was uh, waged over decades prior to the New Deal, um, where we started from a very uh, free market place during the uh, Gilded Age, that it took many lives, uh, you know, generations of activism and politics to essentially erase this idea that the economy exists in and of itself and can't be altered with the principles that gave that resulted in this in the policies that were enacted in the New Deal and then um, ex expanded to uh, in the direction at least of including everybody in them uh, during the civil rights movement. All of that was was done uh, in the past. Um, and then it was systematically undone by a, uh, a political movement that had as its aim the reversal of all of those gains. And in the sphere of economics, they essentially, the, the uh, neoclassical economics of the mid 20th century was about going back to the you know, much earlier version of economics that was basically what was taught in the very few economics departments that existed in the mid 19th century in uh, the United States. Um, and kind of bringing that back and saying, well, this is actually real economics. Everything that's been done in the last 50 years to show how simplistic this is, that was a big red herring. Let's make these theories that were articulated you know, in the 1860s and 1870s. Let's, let's add some mathematical equations and have that be the way we understand the economy from now on. Um, and to me, that was, a, I mean, it's like a dark age. It was a, a, a conscious destruction of knowledge in the service of a political interest. And it seems like we've really ceded a great intellectual ground to not just the right, but sort of the um, the the way that politicians talk about the economy defaults to a lot of these fallacies. As you were talking about at the beginning, it's even hard to escape them because you just think about the natural order of the order of things. But the natural order of things is not the market as it exists. Um you know, it's almost like we need to give every uh, Democratic freshman member of Congress um, Polanyi's great transformation and tell them to beat their Republican colleagues over the head with it. Because there there really is this idea, um, unfortunately, that, um, you know, the Republicans have been brilliant at doing and they had some of the great marketing evangelists of, of the 20th century working on it for them, um, where it's almost considered un-American if you don't sort of accept that the, the free market should reign. And it's bizarre because there is no such thing as a free market. Um, it, it It's not even like a question of, is that a reasonable input? It, it's, as, as you know, like they're, they're, it, it doesn't exist. Like every, every market comes with assumptions and, and incumbents. Um, so I, I think that 
if I could, I mean, I think that the what Roosevelt's doing is really important. I also think there needs to be somehow a political rewriting of the language that we use to talk about markets from the left. And maybe it is that exactly defensive public goods um, concept, but but some sort of messaging that that um, can push, uh, I think, the the default position away from this sort of um, religious faith in, uh, you know, a, a, a non non-existent, uh, you know, first uh, first first thing that is a free market. Right. I, I, to me, so I, I completely agree with that. I, I don't think it has to be that complicated. I mean, I've been reading speeches in the last couple of months by Roosevelt himself from 1938 about antitrust policy, uh, speeches by Robert LaFollette, the uh, governor of uh, Wisconsin in the progressive era. Um, and they had no trouble talking about the economy in very different terms. The way they talked about it was as follows. Rich people are screwing you over. Uh, <laughs> now it's time for us to screw them back over and get your money back. Um, and you know, I don't think that's a very complicated message. I think it is uh, a difficult message for uh, existing democratic policymakers to articulate, not because they can't get their minds around it, but because to articulate that message is to alienate interests that they can't afford to alienate in the way we've currently set up politics. Well, it's like it's the old Upton Sinclair line about it's very difficult to get a man to believe something when his getting paid depends on him not believing it. Right. So I can't tell you how many uh, meetings I've been in where, you know, there's sort of this hand-wringing about exactly what Jeremy was just talking about. How do we are? It's, it's not just about showing that, say, progressive uh, taxation is good for the economy, not bad or, or something like that. We don't just need the research that shows this. We also need the messaging. So I think where I would uh, dissent from the idea that we just want to rerun the New Deal uh, politics and rhetoric uh, the second time around in the next era of uh, high inequality um, is that it is very true that the New Deal was exclusionary in its time. And my uh, conception of the way this happened was that while there were um, genuinely left-wing economics, uh, economic uh social movements that uh, crossed uh, ra uh, racial lines and, and uh, ethnic lines, um, what happened was that when those movements after 50 or 60 years of uh, political action and agitation and, um, and oppression and uh, did come anywhere near political power, they were offered a deal by uh, the status quo that took the form of, well, yes, you can have social security, um, as long as we get to still lynch people in the South, as long as the industries where black workers work are excluded from that social insurance. Uh, and then more or less that the, the leaders of those movements uh, took the deal. That is, they were, they were white, they themselves were white and they represented almost exclusively white constituencies. Um, and they were not having uh, prosecuted their political campaign for decades at that point at great expense. Uh, they were not about to go back to uh, their constituencies and say, well, you know, we were offered Social Security, but I had to turn it down on principle because um, black people were excluded and that would be uh, that would violate our uh, cross race solidarity as working class people. Um, no, what what happened was they took the deal. Um, uh, black people were excluded from these uh, these advances in the 1930s. And then it was only when uh, the federal government was consciously integrated in the 40s and uh, and the civil rights movement uh, gained steam and, and uh, reduced the degree of uh, labor market discrimination, did you actually see the 
um, racial earnings and employment gaps start to close. Um, so when I think about the politics of now, um, I don't want to just say, let's redo the New Deal and sweep the racial exclusion under the rug, so to speak. Um, I think we need to do it better the second time around. Um, and I think that that, at the very least, that certainly requires uh, uh, cross race and ethnicity uh, leadership on the part of a uh, uh, left wing economics movement. Okay, well, thank you, Marshall, very much for joining us. Uh, I think this has been a really interesting and insightful conversation. And, uh, you know, um, we appreciate uh, your taking the time and talking to us. Uh, Marshall also edited a book recently. You want to tell people about that? Maybe plug, maybe make a few dollars. Uh, I'm not going to make any dollars, but I would be happy to have as many people read the book in part because <laughs> my, uh, my chapter in the book uh, covers some of the territory that we've discussed in this uh, conversation. It's called, the book is called After Piketty. Uh, the Agenda for Economics and Inequality. Uh, it is a book about a book. It is about Thomas Piketty's uh, book, Capital in the 21st Century. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, I am one of three co-editors of the book alongside uh, Heather Boucher and Brad DeLong. Um, and then the book itself has something like 25 chapters, each contributed, each contributed by um, an academic from some field. It's, it's uh, many economists, it's uh, the plurality of economists, but from other fields as well. Um, and oddly, my chapter, even though I'm an economist, is exactly about the historic development of uh, social democracy in the United States and Europe between uh, 1870 and, and the 1940s or so. Um, so if you want to hear my thoughts at greater length on those subjects, uh, please feel free to pick it up and you'll also get excellent chapters by other uh, people much more luminous than I. Okay. Um, thank so thank you and um, thank you uh, to our listeners and um, we are now on episode 11 so I thought that maybe now might be a good time to say that if you enjoy our um, our show and you enjoy the podcast um, you know if you want to tell your friends about it if you want to specifically rate it on iTunes that actually is apparently a way that uh, uh, people find stuff. So we'd really appreciate uh, your feedback and we appreciate, we would appreciate a rating and uh, uh, make it easier for other folks to, uh, to discover the show. Thanks.